This message is from Living Rock Church, and we trust you'll be really equipped, envisioned, and encouraged as you listen today. We've just changed things around a little bit this morning because I'd love for us to uh, break bread and come back into worship and We'll bring the children back down as well uh, for, some, for some of that uh, later on. And um, I really believe the Holy Spirit wants to reveal something of Christ to us that's new and fresh and powerful that will change our perspective of Jesus. You know, we haven't yet seen him in all of his glory. We haven't yet comprehended how majestic he is, how awesome he is, how wonderful he is. Holy Spirit, we ask this morning that you would do what you love to do, that you would do what you were sent to do, Holy Spirit, which is to lead us into all truth, to reveal to us who Jesus is, that we would see Jesus this morning as the Christ, that we would see Jesus this, this morning as the Messiah, that we would see Jesus as the risen one, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who is seated in complete authority, all his enemies being made a footstool for his feet. Spirit of God, we say our hearts are open to you this morning. We ask that you would flood our hearts with light this morning. We ask that you would change our thinking this morning. We ask that you'd redirect our vision this morning. From whatever it is where our focus has been over this week, We ask that you'd realign our vision this morning to see Jesus, to see him glorified, to catch something fresh of who we've come to worship this morning. Amen. Amen. We're we're currently in in, uh, Mark 10 to 12 in our trip through Mark's gospel. And um, as I've been reading these chapters over the last few weeks, um, I've been really captured by Mark 11. And... uh, I want to talk about what it means to be his house this morning. And uh, we're going to read through Mark 11, and then I would just like to to pull some things from it to describe who we are, to describe who Jesus is, and to describe why this meal is so important and what it will release among us this morning as we embrace and take this meal with a fresh faith and a fresh understanding of what it's all about. Okay? No biggie, but (laughs) it's going to be really good. Um, Mark 11 verse 1 says this, As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you'll see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and we'll return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their garments over it and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him and others spread leafy branches they'd cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, praise God, Hosanna, blessings 
on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple. After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But they were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. Then Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Then they arrived back in Jerusalem. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves. And he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, The scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. But you have turned it into a den of thieves. When the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. That evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi! The fig tree you cursed has withered and died. Then Jesus said to the disciples, have faith in God. I tell you the truth, you can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything and if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you're praying, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Again, they entered Jerusalem. As Jesus was walking through the temple area, the leading priests, the teachers of the religious law, and the elders came up to him. They demanded, by what authority are you doing all these things? Who gave you the right to do them? I tell you by what authority I do these things. If you answer one question, Jesus replied, did John's authority to baptize come from heaven, or was it merely human? Answer me. They talked it over among themselves. If we say it was from heaven, he will ask why we didn't believe John. But do we dare say it was merely human? For they were afraid of what the people would do because everyone believed that John was a prophet. So finally they replied, we don't know. And Jesus responded, then I won't tell you by what authority I do these things. Typical of Mark. A load of detail, a load of action in one chapter. And I really love the, the layout of this chapter. There's, there's, a, there's a nice symmetry to it. Because when you take this chapter in, in its own entirety, you can see that there's a, there's, a, there's a symmetry. It's a bit of a club sandwich. And kind of the, the, the top and the bottom of this sandwich, the beginning and the end of this chapter, deal with and talk about who Jesus is and his authority. Talks a bit about the Christ's identity and his authority. Because when we read at the beginning, Mark 11, verse 1 to 11, what is it describing? Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem and everybody declaring, here he is. This is the one. This is the Messiah. This is the king. This was a prophecy that Zechariah had prophesied hundreds of years earlier and they're declaring, this is him. This is the one. 
And when we come to the end of Mark 11, from verse 27, what do we see being addressed and being talked over? What are the, the teachers and the religious laws questioning Jesus on? Who he is and his authority. And so it begins and ends with the identity and the authority of Christ. And then there's this central part, which is all about the temple, and either side of the temple, part one and part two, the story of the fig tree. So we kind of, the, 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 the bread, if you like, is the identity and the authority of Christ. And then we've got our layers of ham, the fig tree, and then at the center is the temple, the club sandwich of Mark 11. And I really want us to consider, firstly, the hub of this story, the hub of this chapter, which is what? The temple. And uh, we see that uh, in, in all of the four Gospels, Jesus cleaning and cleansing the temple, it appears in each of them. You know, there's only a limited number of stories and instances that occur in all four Gospels. And when they appear in all four, it adds an extra weight to the significance of what that represents. And we see that in, uh, I think it's in, in Matthew 21, in Mark 11, and in, in Luke 19, and in John 2. And if you think about where they feature in the books, okay, Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, later on, John 2, very early on. And in the synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's described directly after Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem, as we saw just then. In John's gospel, it comes straight after Jesus has turned water into wine. And this has led many people to wonder, were there two cleansings of the temple or one? Did John choose to pull this and not talk about it chronologically, but kind of contrast it with Jesus' miracle of turning water to wine and cleansing the temple? I personally think there may, be, may well have been two cleansings of the temple, one at the beginning and one at, towards the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. Because Jesus was, was all about the house. That's always been God's heart. The house of God has always been at the center of God's heart. That's the Father's heart. And Jesus was passionate about what the Father was passionate about. And so I have no problem with, with this kind of beginning and end of his ministry being all about getting the house in order. It's always been, God, been God's heart. You know, as you read throughout the Bible, um, throughout Scripture, you see that God has always desired to dwell among his people, hasn't he? So when we get to Exodus, the last third of the book of Exodus is all about a tent. God loves Bible week. But that tent was significant. Why? Because that is where his presence was going to dwell among his people. This tabernacle that God was passionate about building so that he could be there. He could rest amongst, the, amongst his people. He's, his heart has always been to fill his house with himself. And it was a prophetic statement because a tent, as we know, is very much a temporary thing. And then what was David passionate about? Above all else, what did he want to do? He wanted to build a temple. A tent, God. I can't handle it. It's too flimsy. It's too limited to contain your glory. I want to build you a house. And God says, you, can, you, you can't build my house for me, but you can do all that you can to prepare it, and your son will build it for me. And sure enough, Solomon builds the temple. And we have this incredible structure that's so beautiful and, and glorious and magnificent. And there God dwells among his people, among the nation of Israel in Jerusalem. But that temple becomes destroyed. The Babylonian Empire come and they, they sweep down into Israel, into Judah, into Jerusalem, and they destroy the temple. Devastation. And the, the people of Jerusalem and Judah are scattered 
And then they're taken into, into Babylon and Babylonian captivity. But they begin to return under the leadership of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel, with a great name, helps them to rebuild the temple again. And when we get to the Old Testament, we see the prophets of Haggai and Zechariah. And what are they doing? They're encouraging the people of Israel to build the house of God. And as they build it, they realize that it's so much uh, less impressive than the house, the temple that was built by Solomon. And there's a sorrow and a sadness, but they finally build the house of God after 22 years. The house is rebuilt. And it remains that way for the next 400 years. And then finally, Herod the Great comes along. And for all of his nastiness and being a bad piece of work, one thing that he does do is he re-establishes the temple. He extends it. He beautifies it. He makes it this incredible temple again, similar to the beauty and the, the grandeur of Solomon, but on a larger scale. And it's in this place that Jesus visits. This is the temple that Jesus walks around. This is the house that God was wanting to build, but this was not the fullness of the house that God is building. This, again, was just an example, just a type, just a shadow of what God's heart was to build, his real house, his real home. And Jesus walks around the, the temple and he says this, my house, Turn to, if you go back to Mark 11, verse 17, he declares, my house, it says in the New Living Translation, my temple, but the word there is house. It's the same word that he then uses a few words later, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. And that word house is the word oikos, which means household, family, home, dwelling place. You know, we, we sometimes talk about the temple like it's something great and something grand. Sometimes we, we talk about the, the kind of gathering together and this building being the tabernacle. It's kind of, a, kind of a, an old Christian saying, but this is the house. Yes. Turn around. Look at one another. You're the house. We're the house. This is the household of faith. This is the house that God was always desiring to build. Always God's heart. Always God's plan. You know, it's interesting. In John's gospel, it describes, in John 1, Jesus came and uses a word, dwelt among us, but that word is tabernacled. Tabernacled. Jesus came as the sort of tent, if you like, of God's dwelling, as we've seen in the Old Testament with Moses. But then it goes on to say in John 2, when Jesus clears the temple and they challenge him, he says, this temple will be destroyed, but in three days I'll rebuild it. What's he talking about? Himself. Jesus was the tabernacle and the temple. This, he, he reveals God's heart that in him, the house was going to be found. The house was going to be built. The house was going to be established in him, the tabernacle and the temple, the fulfillment of the prophets, that in the body of Christ, we were going to see the house of God established. And in Mark 11, verse 17, he says, my house, this is my house. We are the house of God. Hebrews 3, verse 6 says, Christ, as the Son of God, is in charge of God's entire house. And we are God's house if we keep our courage and remain confident in our hope in Christ. Hebrews 10, 21 says, And since we have a great high priest who rules over God's house, let us go right into the presence of God with sincere hearts, fully trusting him. 1 Peter 2.5 says, we are living stones that God is building into his spiritual house. 
each time oikos, the house. And you are his holy priest through the mediation of Christ. You offer spiritual sacrifices that please God. And Christ Jesus is the chief cornerstone of this house. We're the house of God. We're the house of God where God desires to dwell. Where God's presence is to be manifest. Where God's brothers and sisters dwell together in the new covenant and express something of his glory. Far more glorious as glorious as Solomon's temple was, far more glorious. As impressive a job as Herod the Great did. And you know, even this tent was an impressive structure, but this was nothing compared to the house that God is building, his church, the body of Christ. This us, it's you and I. And you know what, as, I'm, as I was reading this, I was caught again by Mark 11, verse 11. Jesus has just had his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. He's been declared to be king. And it says this, after he came into Jerusalem, he went into the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he he left because it was late in the afternoon. But I really love that picture of Jesus entering the temple and just carefully looking around at everything. Can you imagine him walking into the outer courts, walking into the inner courts, just looking around at everything that's going on? seeing what's happening. And I want to say this this morning. Jesus is moving around his house this morning. And he's looking at everything. He's looking at each one of us. He's looking at each stone. He's looking at each life. He's looking at each heart. But he's doing it as part of the house. He's examining. He's looking. He's here by his spirit. Why? Because he's passionate about his house being in order. He's passionate about his house being right. Being a place that honors the Father. And it describes Jesus walking around the temple. So that when I read then and see that it's the next day when he clears out the temple, I understand that what Jesus did wasn't in a moment of unguarded rage. He'd looked. He'd seen. He'd gone away. And then he came back and he said, right, it's time to put things right in the house. And that's what he does. He starts to put things right in the house. That's what he loves to do. He wants to put things right in the house. And you know what? When we break bread together, it's an opportunity for Jesus to walk around the house, to do his examination. He's the builder. He's the one who builds. He's the one who joins. He's the one who fills. And he's looking. And as we take this meal, it's an opportunity for the house to be inspected, for our own hearts, our own lives to be inspected, for the body, for the house of God to just know the examining of the Holy Spirit so that everything is right and in order. Because when that happens, something incredible happens in the house. And Jesus is walking around the house because he's passionate about the house. And the following day, he comes back to the temple. And I don't know, as I said earlier, whether John's account is the same as the synoptics, whether it's the same story told in a slightly different way and told earlier in Jesus' ministry. But I do know, again, that in John's gospel, Jesus puts together a whip from cords. There's a waiting. It's not a reaction. It's a decision to move to put the house right. And he goes on to say that in verse 15, Jesus arrived back in Jerusalem and he entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to them, the scriptures declare my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. You know, I love this 
description of how Jesus deals with things. Uh, uh, during the, these days, who's in charge of, of, of Israel? Who's the ruling empire? It's Rome. But when people came to the temple, they had to pay temple tax. Half a shekel a year would cover temple services to make sure the temple ran. God's very practical. God has no problem with money being used to keep his house in order. He's not shy about it. And it was set up in Exodus 30 that people would come and they would pay. Everybody would pay the same amount every year and it would be for temple services. But what happened was people would come to the Bureau de Change. Whatever you just, I never know what to call it. It changes every time I say it. And they would come because they would have Roman money. And they would need to change it for Jewish currency to be able to pay their shekels. That was a Jewish currency instead of a Roman currency. But the money lenders there and the money changers would charge 15% interest. You thought Marks and Spencer's was bad. 15% interest on those that would come to, uh, to change their money so that they could pay what God had asked for them. There's an, it's, it's, it's unequal. There was a one-upmanship. There was an exposing of others and the poor to, to get for personal gain. And they sat at these tables. And as they sat there, people would come and every person that came, they would rip them off so that this person could enter into the house of God. How awful. How misrepresentative of God's heart. And what does Jesus do? Literally turns the tables. He says, no more. No more will there be inequality. And you know what? When we come to this table... Jesus has done something on this, at this table where there is complete equality among us. We approach by the same blood because of the same sacrifice. It's the same bread that we eat. We all eat of the same meal. Jesus says, there's no inequality in my house. I'm turning that over and I'm putting among you a table that's, that's equal. Where he's the one through whom we come. There's no other means other than through the body and blood of Christ Jesus. Such a leveler for all of us and then he says this he turns the chairs over of those selling sacrifices and I was caught again by tables and chairs and immediately I think of a meal at at our home our kitchen is a kitchen diner and it's 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 the hub of our home it's the place where we as a family gather generally at least once a day probably twice a day for breakfast and dinner where we sit together and we, we just recognize afresh as we eat together around one table that we're a family. And sometimes people have the privilege of joining us in that context. But every day, that's our privilege as well as a family. And we sit around the table together and we eat together and we recognize we're a family. This is our home. This is our house. And I love the fact that Jesus gets the, the, the table right and he flips the chairs over and he says, you know what? It's not about Old Testament sacrifices anymore. What these people were doing was they were selling pigeons and turtle doves at 10 times what people would pay for them outside of the temple courts because people would come with their sacrifices and they'd have to pay to have their sacrifice assessed. And if there was any discrepancy, any spot or blemish in this sacrifice, it was classed as not good enough and they had to buy one from the people who were selling sacrifices in the courts and they would charge up to 10 times more than than it would be outside of the courts, as I've said. And and there was this kind of terrible abuse, if you like, of the sacrificial system. But you know what? When Jesus comes into this situation, I believe what Jesus is doing is is saying, in this temple, I'm reestablishing my new covenant. I'm showing you now how this is going to work. I'm turning the tables. I'm making this a place of total equality. And I'm saying, this is an end of sacrifices. Doves, you're free. 
turtle doves, you're free. Enjoy your freedom. No more are you living in fear of carrying sins because I'm the one who's going to carry all sins once and for all time. The ultimate sacrifice. He turns the tables. He puts the chairs back in place and he establishes a place where we can come together and eat a meal that expresses being the household of God. How wonderful. What a wonderful temple this is. What a wonderful house this is that he's reestablished for us. And you know what? This marketplace, it flooded, it filled the outer courts. That's where all this took place. The outer courts were a place, the only place, where Gentiles could come and worship and pray. And now what was it? It was a farmyard. It was a market store. There was, they were haggling and people shouting and selling. There was the sound of, of cooing doves and, and bleating sheep and mooing cows. There was probably, you know, animals and what animals do all around there. And this was a place of prayer for all the nations and they turned it into a, a farmer's market. How distracting, how cluttered, how messy. And Jesus says, enough. It's time to clear these courts out to put back what it was always meant to be, a house of prayer for all nations. No more clutter, no more distractions. I'm cleaning it out so that it will be what it was always meant to be, a place of prayer, a place of worship, a place of encounter. That's what he's doing with his house. That's what he's done in his house. That's why this meal is so important. No one-upmanship, no inequality. Paul says you wait for one another when you gather. You wait and you eat together because you eat from one table. The sacrifices are gone. When we take this meal, we remember it's not about sacrifices. There's no other means. The only means is the one and only sacrifice that matters, that of Jesus Christ. And when I take this meal, I'm remembering the new covenant that I've been brought into, that I can enter in to the most holy place without any worry, but I can enter boldly. Why? Because I have a great high priest who's gone ahead of me. No distractions. You know, Paul writes and he says, make sure there's nothing among you. Make sure there's nothing there that's causing problems. No clutter. Deal with it. Deal with anything in your lives that's cluttering at the moment. Whether it's your relationships with one another or your relationship with God, it's an opportunity to say, Lord, examine and I'm going to clear anything that doesn't belong in my life at this time. You know what? As we do that in our lives, as we do that in this house, God blesses it. If you turn to Matthew 21... Just going to finish now and we're going to break bread together and then just come back into to worship for a little while. We doing okay? Matthew 21. I want to say why this is so important. This is what will be produced this morning in the house when we approach together and we recognize that we're the house of God, what this meal does, what Jesus has done for us, that when we come with our hearts open, that when we deal with anything in our lives that needs to be dealt with, that we come boldly, we come into the presence of God. And once Jesus has cleared the temple in um, verse 14 of Matthew 21, this was the result. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. I love the fact that when Jesus clears the temple, there's space for power, healing, that all who come are healed. And the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law saw these wonderful miracles and heard even the children in the temple shouting, praise God for the son of David. 
Jesus says later on, haven't you ever read the scriptures verse, uh, later on in verse 16? For they say you have taught children and infants to give you praise. When the house is put right, it releases power and it releases praise. Healing. The blind, the lame, come and they're healed. Children, come and they worship God and there's a release and an outburst of praise. Why? Because the house is in order. And then if you go back to Mark eleven seventeen again. When the house is in order, it becomes what God has always intended, to, intended it to be, a house of prayer for all nations. This is a house of all nations. This is a house of prayer and a house of worship. And then he goes on to say that all the people were amazed at his teaching. When the house is in order, we see Jesus for who he really is. And we're amazed. We're amazed. We're caught by his beauty. We're captured by his sacrifice. We're caught in wonder at what he's done for us. That as we put the house in order, as we allow Jesus to walk around and look at everything, make sure everything's in place, make sure all relationships are right between us, our relationship with God, there's nothing in us that needs to be dealt with because it's been dealt with, it's been sorted. We recognize it's only sorted because he's our great high priest. He's the only source of our forgiveness. We can enter boldly into the presence of God. And as we do, there's healing and power. There's praise and worship. There's a release of an amazement and awe of who Jesus Christ really is. So we're going to break bread together. Stand together for a moment. Thanks so much for listening today. For more information about Living Rock Church and for more great teaching, please visit www.livingrockchurch.org.uk.